カハンニャハラミタシンギョー Thank you for joining the Zen Care Podcast. These recorded Dharma talks are given freely to our community in the heart of New York City, which we are honored to now share with you. New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care is dedicated to transforming the nature of care through contemplative practice by meeting illness, aging, and death with compassion and wisdom. Learn about us at zencare.org. It's really nice to, to join all of you. I really appreciate the chance that、uh, Koshin and Chodo are giving me to speak to you today. So,、um, yeah, I think almost all of you I have not met and probably don't know who I am.、Um, some of you, I think, are in the foundations class or on staff and have been a part of that. So, for those of you, it's nice to see you again. And,、um, So, so, given that, my distance、um, in many ways, geographic, but also being in Rinzai Zen, not the Soto sect, and in a different lineage, training in a different temple, I wanted to,、um, I really wanted to find something to talk about that was going to be relevant to all of you,、um, touch on or build on maybe things that you've already been. Talking about training with. And so I, I went onto the New York Zen Center、um, social media and I was really grateful to find、uh, actually one of my favorite excerpts from Koshin's new book, Untangled, on there. And I was like, yes, I can talk about that. So、um, just very quickly, here's the excerpt. I'll, re- I'll read the whole thing, but it's the one about、um, being still with your pain. So the excerpt reads, At home, no one knew how to get out of this painful gap. Everyone seemed trapped, tussling around in our metaphorical hole with our bodies and minds hurting or getting hurt. I wanted to find life beyond that. And once again, I was saved by a movie. The Ka- Karate Kid came out. There it was again, a teacher and a whiny, annoying kid, which is how I continued to see myself. I thought maybe Karate could be the way out. And I learned that there was a dojo in a local strip mall near our house. It was in a basement and it was mildewy in there. The teacher, Sensei White, used to make us sit in Seiza with our knees tucked under our bodies. It turned out that he was a Zen guy. You'll never be free until you can be still with your pain, he said. That teaching remains essential for me to this day. So, I love that excerpt because it is, it's really full, thick, it's very rich. And there are really, like, I identified at least four themes from that short excerpt that I could speak about. But today I'm really just going to focus on two. And、um, part of why I'm so grateful to have connected with Koshin and Chodo is because it's kind of rare、um, for, for us at Chozenji to find. Other folks in the Buddhist world in the West that we really sort of jive with, but like this is a place where Koshin and I, like, we, we really jive. So, the, the first thing I want to address is、um, that this feels like, I think, to a lot of us in the West, an unconventional place to find Zen, a martial arts dojo or a karate dojo, essentially a place where you're going to learn how to fight. And 
I want to share a little bit. I'm not going to go into it very deeply, but this is actually a place where Zen has been really alive in Japan and where Buddhism has found a home and real meaning um, in Asia for many hundreds of years, if not millennia. A martial arts dojo is a really good place to confront the extremes of the spectrum that we're trying to deal with every day in Zen, um, which is impermanence and suffering, our dissatisfaction with the world and how it is, and with our pain. So um, I know that there are some folks I've, I've met, one or two, who do have a background in martial arts. And if you're a fan of Bruce Lee or any anything like that, you are probably familiar with the idea that the ultimate training in martial arts and any art of fighting is actually to be able to be successful in any counter with encounter without ever fighting. And, and that's a really, um, that might be a good starting point to start to wrap your head around like what Zen and Buddhism and fighting or martial arts have in common. But in Japan in particular, there is um, say in the martial art that I train in, in Kendo, the way of the sword, um, there are some really obvious connections to Zen. And part of that, the first one is if you find any Kendo school, the name of the school is going to draw um, from Zen. So for example, Yamoka Teshu, who was a really important samurai warrior, leader and historical figure in Japan, his, the name of his Kendo school was Jikishin Kageryu. Jikishin means the clear mind or the straightforward mind, or another way of understanding that in Buddhist language might be the non-abiding mind. And so here it is in the name of a school of learning how to fight the techniques of fighting and a message from Zen, very clear. But even in the word Kendo, um, as in many of the names of other martial arts disciplines, Judo, Aikido, um, and in the case of Karate, it'd be Karate Do. That Do is really important. And it's what separates, say, Judo from Jujitsu or Kenjutsu from Kendo. Jutsu means technique. Do is the Japanese for the Chinese word Dao, which we might, might know in English as the way, the path, um, a universal principle that defies definition and rational understanding everywhere and nowhere at once. The moment you define it, it's no longer the Tao. So that is what um, is encapsulated in this name and understanding of any of these martial arts. Kendo does not mean the techniques of sword fighting. Kendo means the way of the sword, essentially a way to discover oneself and to realize one's tr true self, to become enlightened through the sword, to encounter the sword that both takes life and gives life. So I loved seeing this reference to a karate dojo in Koshin's talk and Koshin's excerpt and in his book is a really great starting point. And it's one that just really resonates sort of with where I come from. Now, um, just to back up for a second, the, the Japanese 
arts, whether we're talking about kendo or um, sado, the way of tea, or kado, the way of the flower, um, the, they're very highly and sort of like refined and formal expressions of not just how to believe in Zen or how even to practice Zen, but how to learn how to do or to be Zen. And Zen in my world um, means to transcend life and death, all dualism. It's a verb. It's something you do actively. So it kind of makes sense that there would be um, a method, a form that was created over time to, to hold that experience of learning to do and be. You have these forms, the way to place the flower, the way to serve tea, that create basically a container within which you figure out what the expression or the resonance of your true self is. And, and the thing to remember, though, is that these arts are highly, highly refined. They're expressions of culture that have been, you know, figured out, like, down to every single detail and form over hundreds of years. But as an expression of culture, um, there is a way in which just interacting with any form of culture can bring us this same experience of Zen when we're interacting with, in particular, Asian cultures. And I, I bring this up somewhat because it is very common in the Western world and in Western Buddhism for people to look at some of the cultural forms that we encounter in Zen and in Buddhism, holding gasho, the Japanese words, um, other forms, decorations that we might have on the wall, aesthetics, and, and behaviors and norms and values. And to feel sort of like, ah, this feels really foreign and uncomfortable. And maybe as some people would even describe it, it's kind of like baggage, cultural baggage that really, if we're going to make Zen relevant to us today, we should, we should get rid of that. We should make everything in English, should make it accessible to American people. We should really just get rid of that stuff. It's too Japanese or it's too Korean or it's too Chinese. And, and we really lose something when we do that. We lose that preciousness of that experience like Koshin had sitting on the floor in the Karate Dojo where it was made very viscerally real because he was accessing a form that had been refined for so long to bring about this experience of transcending all dualism, life and death. And then even in a, in a more, um, a less refined form, other aspects of the culture that emerged alongside Buddhism, informed by Buddhism over a thousand years. We lose that, we lose the words, we lose the, the values, the norms of behavior. We lose a little bit of those forms that have emerged essentially over time to give us, to give people the experience of Zen and of the Dharma. So, I like to encourage people whenever they encounter in Buddhism or in Zen, like say you walked into a martial arts dojo and people are, you know, saying words in Japanese or in Chinese, or there are things that just feel a little bit foreign um, to actually really embrace that. Coming into Zen, there are things um, 
that are inherently, even if they don't have that particular Asian cultural feeling, flavor, they're going to feel kind of foreign, kind of ancient, a little strange, and definitely sometimes irrational, unreasonable. You know, this is really exemplified in Koshin's story. Here's this Jewish kid from New Jersey, and he's sitting seiza on a smelly basement floor. His legs are probably on fire, and he's being told to sit there and still experience that pain. And any, like, rational or reasonable American would be like, let the kid move. Don't put him through that. Why are you doing that to yourself? It, this almost seems like child abuse. <laughs> And what does it have to learning with how to, you know, learn do karate? What does it have to learn with punching and kicking? And and you know, that's our rational and and very reasonable in a Western context sort of interpretation or response. But if karate, karate do is not about punching and kicking, but it's about realizing your true self through essentially a physical forging, discipline, and of course the forms of fighting, then, oh, sitting there and say so even when your legs hurt, back straight, seeing the whole room, 180 degrees in every direction, keeping your breathing, your heart rate low and slow, all that, that is the training. Okay, I get it, it's a little different. It's the, undoubtedly the sort of same thing that some of you have experienced in your Zen training. Why am I doing this? What does this have to do with learning to be calm in the face of chaos? What does this have to do with learning to see my own mind clearly? This is just uncomfortable. This is weird. But that is where the training actually lies. And so, um, you know, in this particular context of like the cultural aspect, that's really rich material there to the foreignness, the uncomfortable, the discomfort, Ugh. instead of, and I would encourage us, not necessarily you guys, but just sort of us as a whole in the world of Western Buddhism to not be so quick to throw that stuff away. Um, now, I do want to acknowledge that when I talk about, when Koshin talks about, or when I talk about like sitting with your pain, I think it can sound a little macho. <laughs> And it's important to to qualify um, and so and and explain maybe. And so to do that, I kind of wanted to read something that I wrote for my newsletter um, a few years ago. And it was uh, along this vein, and it was in it was titled, "Don't Move: Advice for Beginners on Zen, Zen Training in Community." And and I just want to read this because I think it's going to give a little additional perspective or context as to why you should do something like that, why you should train the way that we do. So I'll go ahead and start. Buddhism has always held Sangha or spiritual community as highly as the Buddha, as an example that enlightenment is possible, and the Dharma, which is the method shared by the Buddha for achieving enlightenment. But there are some particularly powerful ways that Zen training can elevate Sangha from a conceptual understanding of spiritual friendship to a more of a concrete ride or die sort of samurai fealty. In my experience, it starts with the intensity of the training and the forms. When we sit Zazen, we don't move. We also sit 
with our eyes open, though downcast, and at Chosen Jean and Rin Zaizen, we're facing the center of the room. Every time someone even twitches their nose, probably someone else sees it. If someone starts to untuck a foot, they're liable to get scolded. Don't move. So what happens if suddenly you realize the person sitting opposite you or next to you is crying? Like seriously, heart-wrenching, ugly crying. You can't reach over to hug them or offer comforting words. At moments like these, the constraints of the forms employed in Zazen, no talking, no moving, no looking around, they force us to be more creative. So instead of speech, gesture, and touch, what we do have at our disposal are our posture, our breath, and what in Japanese is called ki-ai, our vital energy, our energy signature, or in martial arts, a yell. So we may find ourselves sitting even straighter and more still so that our companion feels supported by the strength of our posture. Maybe we can put everything we have into breathing long and low into our hara and our low abdomens and into feeling even and calm. Maybe our desire to show kindness burns so strong that they actually feel it, just a pulse of relief or comfort whose origins they can't trace. But most of all, continuing to sit without moving, not even shifting a foot or lifting our eyes, it builds the strength that we need and that others need in us in the face of pain or crisis. Sit there with your heart breaking, but sit tall, see and hear everything, breathe low and slow and feel big. When you're in the room with suffering, especially someone else's, these are things you cannot fake. And they work most palpably and effectively when they come out intuitively and spontaneously, rather than being sort of put on in a way that's conscious or contrived. So that that I wrote a few years ago about essentially the don't move in the face of, you know, be still in the face of your pain. Um, I wanted to share as another perspective because I think we can get stuck on in the West in particular, this sort of like, um, essentially we can get stuck on our pain, on our grief, on what hurts, on our trauma and on our wounds. But in the same way that sitting there in the karate dojo with your legs on fire sitting in seiza is a means of training for something else, um, it's really important to think about those forms of just the being still in the face of your discomfort, not moving as um, an important way of developing ourselves for another purpose, not just for the sake of I can be here with my pain, but because it has a function. And, and this might be something that's like kind of, um, I don't know if it's unique to Japanese Buddhism, but the, the description that I've heard, maybe I think drawing from DT Suzuki is that 
if you wanted to sort of encapsulate the essence of Buddhism when it was still in India, it was this idea of mind only, um, plumbing the depths of the mind to realize universal understanding. And of course, because in religious contexts, when you have one thing, it naturally also means the complete opposite. When Buddhism went to China from India, this principle evolved to no mind, from mind only to no mind, because the void is also everything. And then when it went to Japan, then it became this, what is the function or the utility of this no mind? And my understanding is that it became this principle of the immovable mind, which again, because we always deal in paradox and contradiction in religion, the immovable mind is immovable because it doesn't stop. So here we have in a very practical sense, okay, we don't move in Zazen. We're learning to be still with our pain because it's actually a tool that we use to be in community. It's a way that we build our strength to be able to sit on chaos. And it's through this cultivation of the immovable mind, which comes from the spiritual strength of being able to be still, even when it's really uncomfortable, when it's really, really hard. And that immovability you can think of as like a ball that's flowing down a swiftly moving stream and it can get encounter twigs and branches and rocks, but it's always just going to keep turning in the current and then move around its obstacle eventually. It never stops compared to like a piece of paper or something flat that when it encounters an obstacle, it's just going to get stuck there. So this is sort of like at a very practical and base level and at the very, I think, highest and transcendent level, like why that's valuable, why these things that are uncomfortable and a little foreign and unreasonable and irrational, like why they're really important to our training. The most fundamental level is just so that we can increase connection and reliability with those around us. We can really have their back even when things are super, super hard. And that for ourselves in a more transcendent and universal way, we are cultivating, cultivating a mind that doesn't stop on any obstacle, that can always keep moving to experience this moment right here and this one and the next and the next without still being stuck on what happened back there, whether it's 10 seconds or 10 years ago. I don't know if we have time for questions or if you usually do questions during Dharma talk. I saw someone shaking their head no, so you don't usually do Q&A. Okay. So um, I'm going to leave you with just... Um, just one thought and and wrap a little early. This is something that Chosenji's founder, uh, Tanoi Tenshin Rotaishi said on September 11th in 2001. On that day, I mean, we were, you know, Hawaii is super far away, but the news came in and um, 
think by the time the second tower came down, it was morning in Hawaii and people were here training. Tsunori Roshi assembled a group of his students and went to our bell tower, which houses our peace bell, which is what's a gift from the city of Kyoto to the city of Honolulu after World War II, and which we ring twice a day, every day, to send the vibration of peace out into the world. And he had everybody ring it. And then he said, train hard. Your spirit counts. And I'll leave you with the same encouragement. Train hard. Your spirit counts. (laughs) 